from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today, my guests are speakers from the International Chekhov Conference, Chekhov on Stage and Page, Vladimir Katayev and Olga Galakova, who will talk to me with OSU professor Angela Brintlinger. Then, OSU professor Wendy Smooth will discuss her work and her upcoming talk at the Women's Place at OSU, so stay tuned. Vladimir Katayev is a literature critic and professor at Moscow State University and is regarded as the dean of Anton Chekhov studies. His book, If Only We Could Know, presents Chekhov studies for a general audience. Olga Galakova is a theater critic and often writes about Chekhov's use of space in his plays. Also joining us is Angela Brintlinger, an associate professor at Ohio State University and organizer of the conference. Welcome all to Writer's Talk. Well, one of the things I'd like to start off with is the, the influence of Chekhov, the great influence. He's, I understand, the second most produced playwright in English behind Shakespeare. So his work has been variously interpreted in many different ways in Russia and the United States. It's undergone revivals and reappraisals at different times. So let's start with how is his work regarded in Russia? Of, uh, Russia. In Russia, yes, there are other playwrights actually whose plays uh, are shown more frequently than Chekhov's, although of course Chekhov's plays Ostrovsky, are constantly on the stage. Ostrovsky, for example. But Chekhov is the most famous Russian playwright in the rest of the world, all over the rest of the world. Chekhov's contemporary, uh, Lev Tolstoy, Leo Tolstoy, we call him in English, spoke about this very quality in Chekhov, that, <laughs> that, that his writing is most accessible uh, to all, uh, not just to Russian people, but to all people. To every person. To every kind of person. Every kind of person. Olga added that, he, that Chekhov did not like... Um, Tolstoy. Tolstoy did not like Chekhov's plays, and indeed Tolstoy was the very first to compare Chekhov oh, to Shakespeare, and he didn't like Shakespeare yeah. either. Yeah. Well, and he didn't like Shakespeare either, so he put them in the same Shakespeare. Shakespeare wrote bad plays, and you write even worse. No. <laughs> no. They were contemporary. <laughs> but when Tolstoy himself began to write plays, it was very clear to everyone that he was actually following Chekhov's lead. Okay. Yeah. Should I ask about why Tolstoy was so dismissive of Shakespeare and uh, Chekhov, or is that uh, a bad idea? Well, what was it he specifically, what, what did he not like? He said, when he was writing about Uncle Vanya, he said, Uncle Vanya is a bad person. He's uh, making up to other people's wives, and what is necessary in life, after all. One of the characters is playing on the guitar. Everything is good in life. Why, why, why well, complain? Uh, what's more important is what he didn't like in Shakespeare. He, uh, Tolstoy believed, this is, again, towards the end of his life, he believed that theater, theater should uh, demonstrate moral ideas, uh, religious ideas, and uh, Shakespeare doesn't have any of that, and Chekhov has it even less. Late Tolstoy, yes, that's what I said. Uh -huh. okay. But this is late Tolstoy, who has much, of a more, much more moralistic attitude towards literature and idealist, ideological attitude towards literature and, and need for the literature to actually function in that way. That's one way that he's regarded in Russia. What's your take on the regard for Chekhov in the U.S. or in uh, English-speaking countries um, and other countries? Like we said, he's the second most produced. Mm -hmm. um, he seems to have a, a much, as I think you said earlier, much greater following here than he does in Russia. Since that's a work that's always presented in translation, mm -hmm. that we don't have access to the actual, you know, Russian that he wrote. Why? 
Chekhov really became a European, um, is the only real European writer after Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. Vladimir Borisovich mentions Ostrovsky, who's a very, very big uh, playwright for the Russians, but he really did, never became a European playwright. Okay. In, this, in this personality type um, that Chekhov has uh, in his plays, uh, the Western person recognizes himself. It's a person with complexes. <laughs> it's great to so, be the American here. <laughs> so, so Westerns are, are uh, the people with, with maybe complexes? Maybe less for American, but more for Europeans. For Europe. Okay. But, okay. As but long as we're insulting. I think, I think for, uh, for American too, for example, for Miller, character of Arthur Miller or character of Tennessee Williams. Uh, uh, for example, Tennessee Williams wrote the play uh, Notebook of Trigorin. It's you know I, uh, that's why that's why for um, uh, character in United States it's typically too for character of 20th century, not 19th centuries for American. So, Tennessee Williams is very influenced by Chekhov, and you know the play Trigorin's Notebook that he wrote, which no, is. No, человек Чехова это человек комплекса. So that the, the Chekhov's person is a person with complexes. But what's important also, very important for the Russians, but also maybe for us, is this idea of the individual and the space around him, the individual and the world around him. Chekhov was the very first person in Russia to notice this conflict between um, how the individual and the world, uh, how the individual lives in the world, that the world is larger than the individual, the world has more possibilities than the individual, the man who is just a small person. And one more uh, thing about Chekhov, his sense of humor. One English, uh, one British critic said that Chekhov really was uh, an Englishman because of his sense of humor, typically, um, typically English one. Yes. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think uh, humor, of course, but Chekhov belong writers uh, without uh, um, outside uh, uh, ideology, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to say it. Right, he's, he's pushing his own uh, ideology. Of course, as, he, uh, as writer, he has ideology, but only inside, mm -hmm. never propaganda. I think it's never, we don't know what do you think about it. We mm -hmm. see process of thinking, mm -hmm. uh, but not a result, mm -hmm. not ideology. That's why I think it's so close to West uh, conscience, mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. Not propaganda, you know, some, for example, Lars Tolstoy likes propaganda of own ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, Chekhov had humor to Tolstoy, mm -hmm. when Tolstoy tried to be um, guru. Yeah, okay. exactly. And well, and I agree with this. Is one of the things I love about about Chekhov is that he doesn't tell you the answer. Right? He knows the answer, but it's not there in the text. Okay. And so you have to, as the reader, come up with it yourself. Whereas sometimes when you read Russian literature, you are told the answer again and again. And for Chekhov, the main thing was not to give uh, to give an answer, but to pose 
the questions yes. correctly. Exactly. It was the main thing for him. Mm -hmm. I noticed in your book, If Only We Could Know, you have a section uh, where you talk about Nabokov's dismissal of the question of what does it mean, especially as it applies to Chekhov. And I thought that was really an interesting statement because, as you say in the book, so frequently people say, well, what does it mean? And you try to find something, and that seems a lot like what you're talking about with the, the enforcement of an ideology, of saying you have to understand this in one way. And I'm also wondering if that's connected to Chekhov went through a little bit of a decline around the time that uh, there was political, a lot of political change in Russia. And I'm wondering if because he doesn't have the ideology, that that was part of uh, what was behind there, that he couldn't be co-opted. Is that an accurate assessment? Uh, or I think if I understand uh, correctly, Chekhov, uh, when I tell, has an ideology, it's not um, outside ideology. Of course, inside him was I a lot of ideas about Russia, about connection, type connection with power. But you see, uh, Chekhov was favorite writer of Last Tsar, for example. Mm -hmm. The period of, in uh, Russian history when uh, and Russian literature when Chekhov started to write and uh, developed was period without heroism and uh, for example generation of 60 years or 70 years uh, 60 years told about uh, liberal uh, way or not liberal way about uh, uh, most uh, generation of 60 years 19th century was very political a generation of writers which belonged to Chekhov were not so aggressive political and they talked they, uh, this generation called uh, some of small uh, business yeah малых дел это поколение малых дел the generation of small things we could small even say things. Mm -hmm. and uh, but Chekhov didn't uh, propagand but he had uh, he made a Maybe lot of small doings, small doings, uh, small he acts. He made uh, a lot of. Maybe. Uh, uh, for example, discussion with Tolstoy was what about Tolstoy told uh, the civilization it's bad. Uh, Chekhov told no, uh, progress exists really, and uh, after that, sorry, <laughs> I need uh, help of An Angela. Uh, uh, he told. Отец меня порол бил. He says, my father used to beat me, now nobody beats me. There's progress. That's what Chekhov said. Uh, but, <laughs> so civilization but not necessarily bad. Uh, uh, the population was a very important uh, question for Chekhov. If we change the political uh, situation rapidly, it, it, it won't work because the individual human being needs to be able to relate to his environment. We need to, basically this is the question of revolution or evolution, right? So he's an evolutionist rather than a revolution. But, a third of the population was illiterate, so he wanted to build schools and hospitals. That's why he went to Sakhalin. Each individual person needed to be a part of the progress that was happening. It couldn't just happen from outside. Of course, Chekhov had his own uh, attitude toward all the problems of his time, but there's one thing that, that Vladimir Nikolaevich wants to say that's more important. Even though the problems of Chekhov's time are not the problems of today, the important thing is that Chekhov still speaks to Russia today, regardless of the fact that Russia has completely different problems. There's a classic question, we like to talk about the accursed questions of Russian literature and Russian culture, and there's a classic question, um, who's, who's at fault? Who is to blame? And Chekhov said, we're all guilty. We're all to blame. So, 
не значит, что никто не знает настоящей правды. So this was Chekhov's judgment, actually, of his contemporary uh, political, ideological uh, situation, but it can also apply to today, that nobody knows the real truth, and that's just the way it is. Nobody knows the real truth. The real, the real truth. truth. Mm -hmm. The real truth. Mm -hmm. So that suggests something like uh, no easy villains. Um, it right. says that, uh, like, Uncle Vanya is... Uh, the character is upset about things that happened to him because he over-idolized a professor, and, but it's ultimately his fault. He has uh, to take so responsibility, has to take for, responsibility. What, for his own choices and his own actions. Okay. Yeah. One of the things that I'm curious about that happens, uh, that, you know, like much in the way that we're having this sort of three-way discussion. Uh, <laughs> we could make it four-way. Four-way. <laughs> is uh, when you have um, something in translation, you said uh, earlier that he was very, that Chekhov's plays are very funny. And, but that also gets variously interpreted. And I'm curious about uh, the ways that you've seen it produced in, say, English or in other language that they push the humor or not the humor. And um, mm. because they can be produced a couple different ways, right? You can have them be, um, the cherry orchard can be uh, tragic or it can be comedic. Uh, and I'm wondering what you feel is sort of truer to the sense of it or whether Chekhov himself would embrace both and say, these are all the kinds of things that I want to see. Um, put on the cherry orchard in a tragic manner. He said, I, I, wrote a, I wrote a comedy, and he didn't even want to go to the premiere. So, so in, in the cherry orchard, <coughs> Chekhov is, uh, you could say, well, who is at fault? Why is the cherry orchard perishing? Um, and each individual, is, is it the, is it the, what do we call it, the merchant who's buying up the, the estate and so on? Well, actually, each individual character has to take his or her blame for what is happening. None of them wants to take their own blame, take responsibility for their own uh, part in, in the cherry orchard perishing, and they also don't um, want to recognize that actually they're very similar to everyone else. Everyone is guilty, and they're all similar to each other, but they don't want to recognize that. Okay. And what's funny about that? That's the question. So this, we can look at the cherry orchard, um, if you see all the characters on stage, uh, as if there are two clowns, let's say, at a circus performance, and the two clowns are acting, it's one act, and they are both behaving utterly differently, um, but the viewer, the spectator, can see that actually they are identical. Right? So here the spectator can look at the cherry orchard, at the cast of the cherry orchard, at the characters, and see that they are all clowns behaving as if they were in a circus, and that's funny. Okay. It might not be that funny, but it's supposed to be funny. <laughs> Joining me today is Wendy Smooth, OSU Assistant Professor of Women's Studies, faculty affiliate of the Kerwin Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity, and the speaker for the February 17th talk at the Women's Place at OSU, where her topic will be African American Women and Electoral Politics, Moving from the Margin to the Center. Welcome, Dr. Smooth. Thank you. Happy to be here. Great. So tell me about this uh, talk. How are African-American women moving to the center? Well, 
when we think about questions of African-American women in electoral politics, it's really a relatively new question because we haven't really had large numbers of African-American women either at the national level in politics, state level or local level um, in politics. But when we look across the historical spectrum in terms of women's activism and African-American women's activism in particular, one of the things we see is that African-American women have been present in most every movement for social progress. Um, What generally happens, though, is that the way that we think about leadership, the way that we think about who's in charge of a movement, usually defines African-American women as outsiders. So we don't typically think of them as leaders. But it's Black History Month, so let's take the civil rights movement um, as an example. When you look at the big stories of the civil rights movement, we often get the stories of King and other great leaders of the movement. And here and there, we'll hear conversations about Rosa Parks' activism with the bus boycotts in Montgomery. But what we don't often hear are all of the untold historic uh, levels of activism that African-American women participated in throughout the civil rights movement and taking really extraordinary great risk in terms of you know, moving the message of the movement, housing uh, activists in their homes in the South and rural parts of the South where it was just not safe to do that type of work. They were out at the forefront doing that work. But because we don't talk about that as leadership, we've not historically thought of them as political leaders. And when we look at the Constitution of the United States, we actually can trace a history of African-American women from really direct exclusion under the Three-Fifths Compromise. And then when we had movements around the inclusion of women In voting, Um, we also see um, activism to exclude women, uh, black women, from voting during that time period. So when we were moving towards the 19th Amendment and suffrage for women, African-American women's voices were often marginalized in those debates. So you had women like Sojourner Truth and you had women like Ida B. Wells who were really advocating for a place for African-American women. So when I talk about African-American women being on the margins of electoral politics or on the margins of politics, I'm coming from that, those particular types of historical um, realities in terms of their experiences. Now, we fast forward and look at what is happening in U.S. electoral politics today. We actually see some extraordinary growth in terms of electing African-American women into politics. And in fact, when we look at what's been happening, what happened with the uh, 2010 um elections is that we actually saw some incredible, incredibly startling things happen in terms of women in politics overall, in terms of the numbers of women in Congress stagnating, loss of about 100 seats in state legislatures across the country. But when we look at those numbers and disaggregate them by race and gender, we actually see that African-American women grew those numbers. They grew in numbers. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing plateaus for women overall, but we're seeing a trajectory of increase for African-American women that's really exciting at this particular historical juncture. Okay. So tell me about some of these uh, people that are women that are moving to the center. Who are some of the what you think of as sort of standard bearers or the great examples of what you have in mind? Certainly. Um, 
when we look at women in Congress and taking this last election cycle, exciting election cycle, um, we had a lot of, of, of conversation and interest around what's happening with um, conservative women, but we didn't have as many of the big stories around uh, progressive or Democratic women. And one woman in particular that I would like to talk about is Karen Bass, who was former Speaker of the House in California, the first African-American woman to head um, an assembly uh, in the country. And Karen Bass uh, is a great story to take a look at because she's one um, who moved from grassroots local level politics into state level politics, moved into a phenomenal leadership position as Speaker of the California House. And in this last election cycle, she ran for Congress and won and was one of um, the three new African-American women who are moving into Congress with this 112th Congress. So really a phenomenal story and an inspiring story in terms of women who are interested in grassroots activism, moving from helping in their local communities to moving into politics at the local level, then moving into state politics and onto the national level. So she's one incredibly interesting example and a, a, a new face that we should follow um, in the U.S. Congress. And she's definitely one that marks that notion of moving from margin to center. Okay. You know, a, a big question I have on something like that is that when you talk about grassroots politics, I always think sort of, and maybe the Tea Party has redefined this, but I'm always thinking sort of, um, okay, that's a, as you said, progressive, democratic sort of tradition. Are there, and the person that you were talking about, I think is democratic, right? Democrat. And um, are there, does that happen on the other side of the spectrum? Has there been any growth over there? Is it all on one, all on the left that uh, that African-American women are moving to the center? Uh Historically and predominantly, African-American women have been uh, Democratic candidates and working within the Democratic Party. But at the st- and in, in Congress, there are actually no African-American women who are Republicans or conservatives. At the state level, there are four um, of the um, nearly 300 African-American women who serve in state legislatures across the country who um, run as Republicans. But what's really interesting, though, when we start to look at kind of those classifications of Democrats versus Republicans is that um, when we start to look at policy agendas, one of the things that we see, depending on what part of the country women are, African-American women are from, they might actually hold a very um, socially conservative uh um, morality-based uh, political agenda, very much connected to roots in uh, the church, for example, um, that would make them a little bit more conservative than we might think of as typical progressive candidates. But when you think about fiscal issues, they tend to be much more um, liberal. Okay. Well, how did you come to write about the movement? Um, what is the, um, the ways that you grew to be interested in it? You've talked about some of the historical things. How, what brought you into defining on this particular sort of topic, which I think is probably fairly personal and, and close for you? <laughs> <laughs> Well, a number of different things. Um, Larger project that I'm working on and finishing up a book project on um, African-American women in state legislatures and looking at kind of their experiences um, in the legislature. That was actually um, an idea that came forth after working um, in the Maryland General Assembly and working for an African-American woman legislator and actually seeing um, the ways in which gender and race play a pivotal role in terms of her experiences in the legislature 
legislature and the ways in which uh, other legislators regard um, have regard for um, their colleagues who are women of color. And so that was a particularly interesting kind of puzzle of what is going on there. And so that started um, me in working with started me working on the book project. And the book project uh, speaks to the topic that I'll be speaking on on February 17th in that the talk takes this big snapshot picture of women across history, women across the national, state, and local levels, whereas the book that I'm working on and completing really focuses in on women um, at the state level. And I make a larger argument about the ways in which we ignore state-level politics. But that's the politics that really touches our everyday lives. And so there's a need to pay greater attention to who are our elected representatives. And once we elect them, what happens? What's their experiences? What are their experiences once they're in political office? What kind of themes or conclusions are you drawing so far? I know the book is not finished yet, uh, but what are you seeing? And I'm, you know, stealing all the thunder for the book, but that's okay. You know, what what we'll kind of <laughs> <laughs> what kind of themes are you seeing emerge out of that preliminary ideas? Certainly, um, one of the big questions that I take up in the book, of course, I'm focused on African American women's experiences in the book, but the book actually takes on this larger question of how do institutions in general respond to difference, right? When you have people who have not been represented, um, people who are coming with different ideas, different topics, different ways of presenting issues, speaking on issues, how does the status quo receive them? How is that measured? How do we think about them as uh, operating in the institution? Are they considered powerful actors in the institution? Do they move into leadership positions? What's their experience? And so those are some of the questions that I'm taking up in the book. And some of the things that we're finding is that it really depends on the culture of the legislature. We've got some legislatures that tend to be a lot more um, informal and really operate according to a system of informal politics. We're a little bit more formalized here in the Ohio State Legislature, for example. Politics are a little bit more professionalized than they are in some other states. When you have a more professionalized legislature, you actually have um, a culture that follows a set of rules, and they tend to stick to those rules for the most part, as opposed to a more informal legislature, more citizen-based legislature, where um, things like the good old boy system and even a good old girl system can evolve and determine who who's going to be powerful in the institution, who's going to be listened to, who's going to be influential. And that really has an impact on the types of issues that rise on the legislative agenda, the types of issues that get brought forth and get deliberated on as a legislative body. So those are some of the things I'm exploring in the okay. book. I'd like to ask two questions about that. When you say it's a more professionalized version, are you talking about people that have just been there a really long time, they're making a profession out of it, as opposed to states with more uh, along the lines of term limits? Is that what you have? in mind when you're using that term? Um, The term professionalized legislature is something we use in the literature and political science. Um, And when we think about professionalized legislatures, we look at the amount of time that they meet out of a calendar year. We look at the salaries of of legislators. We look at the amount of staff that they have. Um, You'd be surprised when you look at legislatures across the country that some legislative bodies where you'll have one member I mean, excuse me, one staff member servicing 
up to 20 legislators. So in terms of the amount of research and um, solid facts and information those legislators have is very different from a legislative body such as Ohio, where members actually have personalized staff members who are able to do research. And you also have uh, research groups within the legislative body. So those types of things actually contribute to the ways in which deliberation takes place. When you have a more informal body, people rely on personal relationships a lot more. Um, You rely on the people that you trust. And we tend to actually trust people who have very common backgrounds, that we share common backgrounds. When you're looking at people who've not been in the legislative body, people of color, women of color, uh, women in general, who may not share that type of camaraderie with their male counterparts or people of a different race, then that actually impacts the deliberative process in the legislature. You had worked for a Maryland legislator while you were working on the book. Were you in graduate school at that time, or was this something that you were in politics for a while and decided to go to graduate school because of it? I've always loved politics, (laughs) so that led me into doing graduate work in political science. So I was actually in graduate school and taking advantage of an internship opportunity when I had this opportunity to work for the Maryland Legislative Black Caucus. And at that time, um, an African-American woman was chairing the caucus. And so out of that experience came all of these questions that I've continued to wrestle with postgraduate school. Tell me about writing. You're writing a book tentatively called Perceptions of Power and Influence, the Impact of Race and Gendered American State Legislatures. The writing process is really interesting. I um, have had an opportunity to do two types of research, one in terms of crunching numbers and looking at kind of what is this data telling me and stepping back and really trying to think about what is the story here? So that's one aspect. And then the other thing that I get an opportunity to do is do interviews with legislators from across the country and really having an opportunity to tell those stories. So sitting back and kind of thinking about what are the big picture questions that are are coming from these women's voices and what is essential in terms of reflecting the common experiences of women of color in legislative bodies and then also these kinds of particularized stories that can grip you. So I've uh, started to become a storyteller in ways that my training as a political scientist, for example, has not necessarily prepared you for that the work speaks to. For more from our guests, visit writerstalk.org. Join me next time for OSU professor Richard Shields, who will discuss the surprising politics of the Newark Earthworks, and singer-songwriters Carrie Elkin and Danny Schmidt, who will be in town with Six String Concerts. Until then, this is Doug Dangler. Keep writing.